0: This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and fpcgulfport on YouTube. The question that's often asked is the question Do all roads lead to heaven? Do all roads lead to heaven? In other words, do all religious roads, beliefs, doctrines, ideas, conjecture, opinions, do they all converge at the same place when it comes to matters of faith and theology? Do all roads lead to heaven? I'll ask you at the outset to answer that for yourself, and then, of course, we'll go through the text in the next number of minutes. But how would you answer that? Do all roads lead to heaven? Do all roads lead to the same point? Do you think that everyone, regardless of what they believe and who they believe in, is in essentially the same boat and good shape for the life to come? Do you think that God, that God, such as he is, that he saves everyone regardless of what it is that they profess? This, this idea that all roads lead to heaven. This, this idea that people with absolutely antithetical beliefs and doctrines can both be saved, can both dwell with God on high, this is called pluralism. It's an idea that beliefs can all be homogenized into a singular doctrine with a singular salvation. That beliefs, irrespective of the name of the God in which one believes, all go to the same throne. This is pluralism, or universal salvation. Inclusivism. There's a lot of words by which this has been called. Now, there is a good reason why some people come to this conclusion. There's at least an understandable reason. You see, when we think about matters of salvation, when we think about eternity, when we think about the heaven to come, we also think about those in our life or our walk or maybe right down the street from us, maybe in our own families, who do not believe in Jesus. And because we love them, because we care for them, because we're concerned about their future, when we come to texts like this... Our heart aches. And there are times, there are times when people attempt to widen the gate just wide enough so that it will fit the belief system of those that we surely want to reach God's golden shores. Well, if you do that long enough, you do it across a culture, across the world, what you have is no longer a door. What you have is no singular way. What you have is, again, this homogenization of different antithetical, 180-degree different views that all converge at the same point. And the question for you and I this morning is, is that being intellectually honest, is that being fair with what the book has to say? Equally importantly, is it true? Is it true that all paths lead to heaven? Again, how do you answer that question. What conclusions have you drawn? Well, Scripture does speak to this issue. Scripture talks about this matter from one end of the book to the other end of the book. Just a small sampling, John 14, 6, which Doug read earlier, Jesus made the statement, he says, I am the way. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And today's reading in Acts 4, the Apostle Peter is going to say virtually the same thing. He says, there's no other name, there's no other path, no other way, no other door. There's no other name under heaven, given among men. No syllables have ever been uttered that match up to the name of Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved than His. These texts, and a few others we'll look at, have a singular statement. The question is, do we believe it? Well, this morning we're going to attempt to explain why there's only one door, why there's only one way, why there can't be a myriad and a multitude of other options. We're going to talk about why this is, we're going to talk about the implications for us and for our loved ones. All right, if you would, let's look at verses 1 through 7 of today's text. We'll start here, and then we'll just kind of work our way through the bounds. Verse 1. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they had taught the people and preached to Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The leaders had heard and seen what was going on in the city. They had heard and seen what was going on in the temple. They had heard and seen what Peter and the others were saying, and they knew that if the people believed it, the people would leave their sphere of influence and run to the disciples. And so verse 2, being greatly disturbed, greatly disturbed, they heard that Peter had taught the people in preaching Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them, and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of men came to be about five And it came to pass the next day that the rulers, the elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in their midst, this is a picture of a circle, they were surrounded by this entourage of leadership in Jerusalem. When they had set them in their midst, they asked, by what power or by what name do you do this? By what power, by what name have you done what you have done? All right, what is going on at the start of verse 4? We're joining the story kind of, kind of midstream. As we come into it in Acts 4, something happened to make the leadership frothing at the mouth against the disciples. Well, if you had gone back to the previous chapter, chapter 3. What you see is that there was two of the apostles. You have Peter and you have John. They've gone up to the temple as they usually do. They went up there to pray and to think and to say holy and religious things. And they came across a guy. They came across a guy that everyone had come across. This was a beggar. This was a crippled man. He was a lame man. He was one who routinely positioned himself at the gate of the temple that others might come by and have some pity and provide him with some sustenance and some provision. This was a man everyone knew was a beggar, was broken, was lame, was crippled. But in this occasion, after coming upon this guy, Peter and John, they had compassion upon him. They told this man something he didn't expect. They told him to rise up. They told him to rise up in the name of Jesus. And to the amazement of all those who were watching this, because there was a lot of people gathered around, to the amazement of everyone who saw this guy and heard the words, rise up, that's exactly what he did. This man stands up, and after he stands up, the next few verses say that he begins to jump and praise and leap and do a jig. He's excited. He's happy. This is the best day of his life. A miracle has happened, and if you would watch such a thing, you would have said, wow, that's a miracle, because I've seen that guy for years. He couldn't as so much as move an inch of his own volition, and now he's jumping. Now he's praising God. As you thought about that, as you thought about the miracle that just occurred there, then you look to Peter and John and say, all right, how? What went down here? What happened? What transpired? Well, that's what was going on. There was a group of people that gathered around. They were trying to understand what had happened, and this included some of the religious leaders. But unlike others who looked and heard what was going on and believed in Jesus, unlike others, the religious leadership, ironically at this time, they just got mad. They just got angry. Their hearts were not warmed by the sight of this broken man standing. They were not excited or enthused at the least. Well, Peter, at this moment, as people are gathered around him in chapter 3, Peter used this as an opportunity to preach the gospel. And this is what he said back then. He said, men of Israel, why do you marvel? Why do you marvel at this? Why do you look so intently at us, as if through our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his Servant Jesus. His servant Jesus, who you delivered, delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when Pilate was determined to let him go. But you denied him. You denied the Holy One and the Just. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. This is Barabbas. You asked for a murderer to be exchanged. For this wonderful, sweet, gentle, kind-hearted guy. You wanted a murderer in place of him. You killed the Prince of Life, who God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. That is a strong statement. It's a strong indictment. How do you think it was received? How do you think it was received by the people to which Peter was speaking? Well, not well. The religious leaders, the scribes, and the Sadducees, and the chief priests, and the chief priest's friends, and tennis partners, and all that, they got mad. They got angry at Peter and the like, and so they threw him into jail. You know, if your object in life is to win friends and influence people, you're going to have trouble if you talk a lot about Jesus. If your object in life is to win friends, or get the culture on your side, or have a whole lot of social network advancement, you're going to have tough times the more often you raise the flag of King Jesus. Well, if it's true for us, it was triply true, and more so true of Peter in this context. He was telling the very people who bore responsibility for killing Jesus what they had done. If his desire was to get on their good side, this is not the way to do it. And we see it wasn't the way to do it because of their response. The priest, the captain of the temple, they laid hands on them. That's a genteel way of saying they grabbed them by the shirt collars and they threw them into lockup. Now, sometimes in life, people get angry, but that anger, it fades. You get angry about something, something gets your attention, you get worked up about it, and then, then you go to bed and you sleep on it, and the next day you're not so angry. You know, you have your cup of coffee and, and you feel a little bit better. Well, the next day here, Pharisees, maybe they didn't have their coffee, I don't know what the deal was, but they were even angrier than the previous day. And so in verses 5 and 6 of today's reading, all the religious elite and the leaders in Jerusalem, they bring the apostles before them, and the interrogation begins. And the very first question that the chief priests and the scribes and the Sadducees and all these people ask them in verse 7 is this, by what power, by what name have you done this? By what power, by what name, have you caused this man to walk? They wanted to know what had happened Well, Peter is going to tell them in verses 8 through 11 of chapter 4. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people, elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done for a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, then let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that it was by the name of Jesus. This is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead, by which this man stands before you in the temple. This is the stone which was projected by you builders, and it has become the chief cornerstone. The leaders ask Peter, Who did it? We see the God walking. How did this happen? Who is responsible for this thing? And Peter says, Do you really want to know? Do you really want to know? Well, I'll tell you. Guess what? The one who did this, by whose name this miracle occurred, it is the exact same one who you killed. It is the exact same one who you crucified and put on a cross. You want to know who did it, by whose name this happened, by whose name any miracle happens, by whose name you draw another breath? It's the same name. Jesus Christ. He was clear, he was unequivocal, even when threatened, even when hands were laid upon him, even when a future of imprisonment, death, stood before him. He stood in the midst of this assembly, he says, Let it be known that by the name of Jesus, this man stands before you whole. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Let me ask you a question before we go any further. If Peter had simply told the interrogators, if he would simply answered and said, well, God did it. God did it. If he had done that, would he have been wrong? Well, no, that would have been correct. That would have been correct. Do you think he would have gotten into much trouble if he had said God? Well, I, no. I mean, it was clearly supernatural. You know, there was no physicians, there was no vitamins you could take at that point to cause this to happen. This was clearly a miracle of some occurrence that came from a divine seat of authority. So if Peter had said, well, God did it, I don't think he would have got a lot of trouble. But you'll notice he was far more specific than that. You see, a vague reference to God in the abstract would not have offended the ears of the leaders. Even in our own day, if you talk about God in the abstract and you don't really name him. Say, God bless you, or something like that. If you talk about God in the abstract, and you never name him, you never call him Jesus, that's not going to make people too mad. Talk about God in very vague terms. That doesn't offend folks so much. Abstract references to unnamed gods do not elicit angry responses, generally speaking. But, what if you're more specific? Well, Peter was specific. He said, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He got as specific as he could, so they didn't miss out who this was. It's by Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This one, who you killed, that's the means by which this guy walks. He didn't appeal just to God in an abstract sense. Rather, he identified the second person of the Trinity as the very name by which this beggar had been healed. And it was hearing that name that caused the religious leaders to lose it and bring about their wrath. A number of years ago, I had an opportunity in a church setting to serve alongside an elder who was a former U.S. Army chaplain. Now, as a chaplain, he had been in a setting where sometimes it can be difficult to name the name of Jesus Christ, and sometimes there's consequences for being specific. And yet, he would tell us this story on the session. He told us this story of this time in which he was put in a position to say an invocation at a very important setting, Very important setting, lots of top brass and important people there. And he was given the opportunity, the responsibility to lead in the opening invocation or prayer. Well, right in the first five words that came out of his mouth, two of them were Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, he began to pray. He began to speak. And that's not the only time he used the name of Jesus Christ. His reference to God included specific references to Jesus as the Savior of those who believe. Well, as you might expect, that was not terribly well received. And this gentleman said that the worst he ever got chewed out in his whole life was on this particular day, when in front of the top brass and the like, he had rose the flag of Jesus Christ higher than any other flag that was on the field that day. He got chewed out terribly, but when he would tell the story, he'd wink and he'd say, you know what? I'd do it again. I'd do it again. I'd do the same thing. Just like Peter, this elder knew, the name of Jesus offends. It really does. Try throwing it into your Facebook feed and such, and you look at the responses. It does offend. Those people get angry. And yet this elder whose story I shared, or Peter and the martyrs of the first century, good, faithful people across the centuries, don't deny their Lord and Savior, even if there's a cost. The world, our modern world needs more of this conviction. More of this conviction, not simply to appeal to faith or God in the broadest possible sense in order to offend the least amount of people, but a desire to say, look, there's one means, one way, one door, one path. There's one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. You have to have a willingness to say what needs to be said have to have a willingness to take the flag of King Jesus and raise it as high as is humanly possible in whatever context you are or serve. Well, Peter did that. And then, for good measure, he added this in verse 11. He looks at those same people who are so mad at him, and he says this, he says, This is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. In other words, Peter, in the speaking of the Holy Spirit, he looks at him and he says, you know, what's going down here today was prophesied would occur centuries ago. Specifically, he's referring to a psalm. Psalm 118 says, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. Peter's saying, the very stone, the very rock on which the church, on which the kingdom, on which the whole world is built and exists, is this one, Jesus Christ. And yet, he is rejected by those who should know better, the ones who have been entrusted to build his kingdom. The stone that was rejected by the builders has become the capstone, and it is marvelous in God's eyes. All right, let's move on to verse 12. Verse 12 contains the words that Peter had been building towards all along, the most significant words of this passage, and they say this, Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, when it comes to the topic of salvation, people tend to fall into one or two camps. If you were to go into churches across the country, across the world, there are really two ways to understand these sorts of passages. For simplicity's sake, we'll call them inclusivism and exclusivism. And I'm going to define both and then talk a little bit about, I guess, the pros and cons of each. Inclusivism... Inclusivism believes that God's plan for salvation includes beliefs and doctrines, religions of all those people across the globe. That God's plan of salvation enfolds, includes all manner of doctrines, beliefs, names, even gods. That's an inclusivist. An inclusivist believes that all the roads, they all lead, they all lead to heaven. Conversely, Conversely, an exclusivist has the opposite view, a strikingly more narrow view. An exclusivist believes, no, no, there can't be 8,000 roads that all go and converge in the same direction, especially when they're antithetical to one another and seem to be going in 180 degrees opposite. They don't all end at the same point. An exclusivist says, no, that can't work that way, it doesn't work that way. An exclusivist believes there's one way, and it excludes the other option. Excludes the other options. Now, there are advantages and disadvantages to either view. If you're an inclusivist who says everyone's saved and like, if you're an inclusivist, the advantage to that is this that no one's that mad at you. If you're an inclusivist and you stand before people in any context and you say, you know what, whoever you are, whatever you believe, whatever you call God, it's all good. We're all going to end up on His golden shores. If you say that, The advantage, such as it is, is that no one will get that mad at you. They'll go, okay, okay, you're not ruling me out of the kingdom? All right, sounds good. That's the advantage, such as it is. The disadvantage of that, number one, is that it's intellectually dishonest. Number two, it's inconsistent with Scripture. Number three, you can't reconcile verses like we're looking at today in any way, shape, or form with that view. If Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life, no one comes to the Father but through me, if you hold up this word, this book, any of this, and call this legitimate and God-breathed, then there's no way on God's green earth that you can reconcile an inclusivist view with that. That's a disadvantage, and I assure you it outweighs the advantages 10 to 1. Now, the exclusivist, the exclusivist, again, there's also advantages and disadvantages, but they're the flip-flopped, they're flip-flopped. Now, on the one hand, the exclusivist is more biblically faithful, The one who says, well, there's just one means, one way, one door, the advantage is that's in line with Scripture. Such an individual is not at war with his own conscience, and he's not at war with the book, because he's being honest with what the book says, even if he doesn't fully like it or understand it. He's at least being honest with what the book has to say. That's an advantage. It's a good advantage, an important advantage, a necessary advantage. The disadvantage, such as it is, is that such a one is who says that Jesus is the only means in heaven is not going to be the most popular guy at the party. He is not going to win friends and influence scads of people on social media if he has this sort of view. In fact, he will offend. I think it's a reasonable disadvantage to take. It's one certainly that Peter, Paul, and others took, they accepted and understood that, hey, this is the way it works, that so we will not water down truth in order to appease the world around us. This was the view of Peter and Paul and you of Christ himself. I am the way. He didn't hide it. No one comes to the Father but through me. The red letter print is pretty clear. With that said, people have trouble sometimes, even in churches, even in brick buildings with crosses out front. They can have trouble with this. This morning, which approach seems right to you? That of an inclusivist or an exclusivist? Logic requires a choice. Let me share a brief analogy. At our first service, I was reminded, I looked out, and there was a number of people who I know to be excellent chefs and cooks. So I made this analogy. If you were to go into a kitchen, let's say there's some world-famous chef, and they've got all the supplies or a kitchen that's kitted out with all the foodstuffs you might need. And then on the shelf, there's all these recipes, recipe cards or recipe books and the like. So this world-renowned chef has all the ingredients and all the recipes and the like. If you were to walk into that kitchen, go up to the chef and say, you know, You know, chef, I think that all recipes lead to steak or whatever, fill in the blank. Whatever your favorite meal is, the chef will look at you and say, no, it doesn't. It doesn't work that way. You cannot take any amount of ingredients using any amount of quantities, throw them in a pot and come up with steak or whatever the meal you're looking to prepare is. You can't work that way. In order to get to the accomplished necessary end, there has to be appropriate necessary means, tools, ingredients. There's a recipe. You follow it. You don't follow it, you don't end up with that which you set out to attain. If you went into a chemistry lab, it would be no different. You go into a chemistry lab, and you see all the lotions and potions and bottles and beakers and all that, and you go in, and you tell some scientist in the white coat, you say, you know what, I bet if we mix this, this, and this, you know, mix all these ingredients, you know, we'll get, I don't know, gasoline, something. He'll say, no, it doesn't all, it doesn't all result in the same final product. You know, the same is true in matters of doctrine and belief. You simply can't call God, Jesus, Jehovah, and simultaneously call him Baal, or Asherah, or Moloch, and worship him as such, and pretend that you're worshiping the same God. Two people worshiping God by different names, different belief systems, different books, different doctrines, different sacrifices, all that stuff, they're not worshiping the same God. They can't be. The recipe, so to speak, is different. You can be loving and well-intentioned in thinking that that's the way it works, but it doesn't. And you wouldn't accept that in any other field. Man alive. You wouldn't accept this in a kitchen. You wouldn't accept this in a lab. Why would you accept it if you're walking to church? That someone would say, we can believe anything you want to believe. You have this belief. I have this belief. You have your truth. I have my truth. It's all the same thing. It doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. Basic logic, basic common sense suggests it doesn't work that way. If one man says that Jesus is God and the other man worships the interplanetary spaghetti monster, they're not equally legitimate. They're not the same thing. Two contradictory statements cannot be equally true. This is, again, the law of non-contradiction. Now, for the sake of time this morning, I'll presume that you all got that. I imagine you've got this, that you really can't call two different gods, two different names, two different belief systems and really be worshiping the same thing. I assume you got that. Well, here's the thing. There are some inclusivists that make that case, that make that case that all roads lead to heaven. But there is a nuance that many inclusivists have that we have to mention this morning. An argument that many people make is not necessarily to say that all belief systems are equally true. What What they say is that all belief systems may not be equally true, but if you believe one thing and I believe something entirely different, that God will save us both because he really doesn't care about truth. There's some who say, yeah, people in this other belief system, they got it completely wrong, but they're faithful. Yeah, they call God by this different name, they have different doctrines, different holy book and the like, but they pray and they're diligent and they're sincere in their hearts. And some will say that just because they're wrong, it's irrelevant to God's plan of redemption. That what he really values is not truth, what he really values is not their profession, he just values their works in trying to appease him. This is what some, in fact many, are saying. That it's not so much a matter that both beliefs are equally valid. They believe that God really just doesn't care if you come to Him or worship Him by invalid means, invalid names, invalid sacrifices and the like. And it's in this way that they say that all roads lead to heaven. Even the road that would seem to dig right into the ground. That ultimately God is appeased or pleased with with those who pursue both. We could critique we could critique that on a human or a philosophical level. But with our remaining time, think about it for a moment from God's standpoint. Let's say you're God and you created the cosmos. You created the cosmos and creation and our first parents and the like. And you set it all in motion. And then you revealed yourself to the first parents. You walked and talked with Adam even the cool of the afternoon. You told them a bit about yourself. And then in due time, you know, you sent prophets and there was scriptures and the like. Let's say that as God that you had done such a thing. But then as you look down at the planet, there's all sorts of people that turn up the nose at that. At what you said and what the prophets had to say and what the writings were. In fact, they go off and they just come up with a gods that they make up out of whole cloth. They start fashioning gods, whittling gods out of trees and broomsticks and the like. They start just naming animals God and the like. They turn to Baal and Asherah and Moloch. And not only do they turn to these heathen, pagan gods, but they start to worship them in heathen, pagan ways. Instead of the sacrifices that you, God, have appointed, they are doing weird and creepy and wicked things like human sacrifice. There have been a lot of belief systems that have done that. If you're God, is there any chance, if you're a holy and good and righteous and loving God, that you're going to accept that and validate that on the same level as you validate this? No way. Not if you're good and holy and righteous and just. If you're a God who is truth, then you're going to validate truth and you're going to reject lies. There is no way on God's green earth or in the eternity to come, that he is going to accept or tolerate those who call him by a name which he is not, those who reject his son outright in the sacrifice on Calvary, those who do not believe what his word has to say, who have no place in their life for the church, they are completely and utterly outside of his plan for redemption as it is expressed to us in the 2,000-page book that he gave us. I understand if we don't like to hear that. I understand if there are those in our world that on a human level we love so much that we don't want to see them fall under God's condemnation. I understand on a human level that there are those who we care for deeply, whether they're friends, relatives, coworkers, people down the street, or just the world around us at large. And I understand that it's hard to think through a future for them that involves their condemnation. Heaven is too great and hell is too terrible for us not to have our hearts go out to those who seem, if this is true, to be lost and without hope in this world. On a human level, if you don't have some compassion and empathy for them, I have questions for you. We should have compassion and empathy and care and love for the people around us, people in our families, coworkers and the like. But I'll tell you this, if we love them, we'll tell them the truth. If we love them, we'll declare as Peter did that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we'll tell them, don't you dare trust any other name. Don't you dare swing out to eternity on any other golden strand than that which is given to us through the personal work of Jesus Christ. Or you will fall. That's the most loving thing we could do is be honest with people about these things. Peter, Paul, others... John. They wanted their peers to be saved, but they knew that faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the Word, not from conjecture and opinions and guesses and our desires and our whims and our hopes. I assure you, you cannot take the path, the singular means, the singular path into salvation and heaven's shores, and wrench it wide by your own heart's felt desires. And as I said before, I'm convinced that when it comes to matters of truth, that whether it's recipes in your kitchen, whether it's stuff in the lab, whether it's a school teacher. If a school teacher was to teach our kids and then send them home, and you look and you got the kids' paper and it says A plus, and you say, Wow. And then you look and your kid put one plus one equals jello. <laughs> and you say, That can't be right. You look further down, 2 plus 2 equals purple. You look at this and you say, why in the world is there an A plus on this paper? And then you talk to other parents and their kids at the same result. The teacher is just giving A pluses to everybody, irrespective of what they answered. We would say such a teacher is not doing their job, is not being loving and caring, is not preparing the children for the future, is not being honest with them, and their lack of honesty with them is going to hurt them down the road. That's what we would say. If you want to hold chefs and lab scientists and teachers to that sort of responsibility, to hold to the absolutes that exist in the world around us, then you should expect no less in church, no less in matters of theology. All right, as we look to wrap up, let me just cite, there are a couple of the verses, and I don't want to miss them because I want to make the case that everything we're saying today is not proof texting one or two verses. Everything we're seeing in Scripture is replete from one end of the book to the other. John fourteen six. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is not ambiguous. 1 Corinthians three eleven. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. John 3:36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe the Son shall not see life. 1 Timothy 2. There's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The most widespread religious book. The oldest religion on the entire planet, a book which has been proven historically, archaeologically, prophetically accurate, time and time again, has this statement. It posits this point for our consideration this morning, that Jesus Christ is the singular means by which we can reach God's golden shores and the Father that awaits there. Jesus Christ is the singular means. What, What do you do with that statement? Well, I'll tell you this much. You reject it at your own peril. You reject it at your own peril. God gave us a 2,000-plus page book. He sent us prophets after prophets after prophets. He sent his own son to live, breathe, and ultimately to die amongst his own people. And every one of these messengers has the exact same message. Turn to Christ and live. If you're not done so, today's the day. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.